Turn with me this morning to the book of Mark. As we journey through this gospel, let us turn to Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35, and we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 20. Mark 4, beginning at verse 35. As we get there, perhaps some of you have already been heard or bombarded, at least in our country, by elections. Supposedly, when we have an election, we give a party control in our Congress. But if you're like me and you have American cynicism, I sometimes ask that question, what difference does it make? Increasingly, I think we ask that question with other types of authorities as well. Bosses, teachers, parents even, are losing their authority and respect for it. In this passage, we're reminded Jesus is Lord. But what difference does that make for us? Follow along as I read. And I think we'll be reminded of this truth and be challenged with this teaching. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what, what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. O Lord God, this is your word. I pray that you will powerfully use it by your spirit in the hearts and lives of every single person here and who might listen to it from afar. I pray, Lord, that the words spoken here and thought here, the things thought here and done here, will be consistent with your word, or else pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've perhaps seen all the news reports of what's going on in the world around us, haven't you? Perhaps you need to be reminded of the efforts of genocide among the Uyghurs in China. Or perhaps you might not know that once again, historically, both the 20th century and now again in the 21st century, there's an attempt at genocide against the Armenians. Perhaps you know as well that the lives of many Christians are threatened in many countries worldwide. I could give you a list. I could tell you a link in which you could go to to find some of the most persecuted places in the world where Christians fear for their lives on a daily basis. And then, of course, there are the heartfelt things of our own people when our children and adults are being groomed both to self-destruct and to devalue life. Consequences, even of our leadership in the total fiscal irresponsibility of our governing authorities, the consequences of those things are knocking on our door. That's just a few things I could mention that prompt us to fear what's going on. In fact, I think that many of our journalists, so called, and many of those who follow the news, know that there is fear-mongering going on in every day, in every news article, seemingly, in our country. Now, are there good reasons to fear? I'll let you answer that question. Is fear a tool for power? Absolutely. There are lots of things that are sad, destructive, and cause us anxiety because of evil in the world. God is in control. And Jesus Christ is Lord and King. These two events in the history of God's people, given to us in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, remind us that Jesus is first Lord over creation. Secondly, he is Lord over the armies of darkness. And finally, he is Lord without question. First of all, if the scriptures are true, which we posit that they are, then we see that Jesus is Lord over creation. Here are the circumstances. We naturally fear the forces of nature or creation because we cannot control them. As much as a scientist will tell us if our certain habits and ideas would actually change the climate or the weather, 
In reality, God is in charge. And rightly so, from the beginning of human history, there were those who feared the storms on the sea, those who feared the windstorms on the land, those who feared flooding and earthquakes and volcanoes and all those different types of things. The forces of nature, as others would say, are powerful. This is just one illustration of this. Jesus is in the boat. He's been teaching the crowd. They desire, he decides to go across the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Gennesaret. And leaving the crowd, it says they took him with them in the boat. Mark is the only one that tells us there were actually other boats with him. We don't know what happened to them in the end. But here's the situation. Jesus has been teaching these crowds. Evidently, he's tired. This describes the humanity of Christ, doesn't it? He's tired. He's ready to stop teaching for a while. And I have to say, if you're teaching and you teach a lot, it can be exhausting. And so here he is. Because of exhaustion, we find him sleeping. This storm comes up. Terrible storm. They're all afraid for their lives. And here he is sleeping in the stern on the cushion. Kind of reminds us of Jonah, doesn't it, in the Old Testament? Here is this terrible storm that's coming up, and there's Jonah sleeping in the boat. Jonah, unfortunately, can't do anything about the storm himself. It's only according to God he tells the sailor to throw him in the ocean of all things. But here, Jesus demonstrates that he's not just human. He demonstrates his lordship. The humanity of Christ, that he is in exhaustion and sleeping, but here the lordship of Christ in this circumstance. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing, they ask. In other words, this particular storm is so great that they think they're going to die. Now, could this be true on a lake? Here's the Sea of Galilee. I've not been there, but commentaries tell me that storms like this can come up very quickly on this lake. And because of the way that this particular lake is situated with some of the hills and mountains that surround it, it can be a breeding place for these great winds. And the boats of that day, many of them had shallow lips around the sides of them so that once they began to be flooded, they would be in danger of sinking. In fact, they still, every once in a while, in the Sea of Galilee, will find the remnants of one of these boats, or a boat through history up till the present, that has sunk because of these storms. So the nature of these storms on Lake Galilee is such that in this time, with their particular type of boat and this particular type of storm, a squall that came up very quickly, and in fact, the, the word here that's used for this squall is actually the word we use for earthquakes. Seismic or seisma. Here is this particular storm. It's radically terrible. They fear for their lives. Verse 39, he woke up, and here's what he did. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And there's an immediate, immediate calm at his voice. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. 
Now, is it true that storms on the Sea of Galilee can quickly kind of settle down and be snuffed out? Yes. But not simply because somebody spoke to them. In fact, the literal words here are like this. Be silent, be muzzled. And they were. And he said to them, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You know, this is something, isn't it? When we see the effects of a storm, it does instill fear within us, doesn't it? And he says to them, why are you afraid? In fact, Matthew tells us he asked that question before he said, be still, be silent. So maybe he did that both times. You know, the recollections of eyewitnesses aren't always matching completely. And here they are telling us both before and after. He asks, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says, now they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They recognize this is authority not, over, not only over men, but over creation itself. What is the greater fear? fear of the effects of creation and storms and natural disasters and all this, or the fear of the living God present amongst you. Now, I have to say, I know what it's like to be afraid of a storm. In fact, just this summer, my family went on vacation in Kentucky. We were in our van. We were set to camp out later that evening, and we went through the Kentucky, and all the emergency alerts came off on our cell phones, and we realized we were in the midst of a terrible, quick storm that was coming up. The clouds were gray, even brown. And the wind started coming up. And we didn't know where we would pull over on the side of the road. We just kept going until suddenly the rain turned into hail. And the hail became so strong that I had to pull over to the side of the road. And we listened to the hail clunking on our car, almost golf ball or larger sized hailstorm. I began to wonder if the window next to me would be broken uh, by this hailstorm. And the memories for me came across when we moved from upstate New York to Iowa. And the first time the sirens went off in town to alert us of an impending tornado that would come down one of the streets of our town. Fear. The fear of this kind of storm that can take away our life. Not just our property, but can injure us. Take away these things. And yet this fear of creation, Jesus tells his disciples, is misplaced. We should have a healthy fear instead of the power of Jesus Christ who at a mere word can stop the wind of a storm, can stop anything that would be impending upon our safety from all of creation. And the people there, remember, these are the disciples. They're the inner circle. They're being taught all of the intricate details of what the parables mean. They're sitting at the feet of Jesus, and even they ask this question, who is this? sometimes we get in our lives today that Jesus is a cuddly teddy bear. And we just kind of come around him and cuddle around him and he's always nice and he's always welcoming and all those things. But no, that's not the picture of the scriptures. 
the picture of the scriptures is a commanding man who can, by his voice, still a storm, who can, by his word, cause a fig tree to wither and die in a day. Someone who, we are told, will judge the nations of the earth. Jesus is Lord over creation. But perhaps even more amazing is this story of this man who was possessed by demons. Jesus is Lord over the armies of darkness. And I have to tell you, you should fear or at least have a healthy respect for the supernatural. And I have to say, I think many of us fear the demonic or the supernatural, yet that's unnecessary if we're believers in Jesus because Jesus has power over these armies of darkness. But this describes first what it describes here as a demonized man. Notice this guy. Kind of interesting. I know Matthew tells us there's two men. Here there is one. Can't really reconcile exactly why that difference is there. But both Mark and Luke tell us that this is one man with an unclean spirit. And notice how it describes him. It says, he met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. First of all, notice here that he's described as unclean. He's living in physical and moral filth. He's unkempt. Luke tells us he was without clothing, he was naked. He was someone that was unkempt, probably smelled, probably uh, was someone in very terrible conditions. He was unclean in part because he's living in the tombs. Anytime someone were to touch a dead body, they were considered unclean, particularly in the Jewish faith, although this is particularly among the Gentiles on this side of the lake. So first of all, it describes him as unclean. The second thing that we might say, particularly as they might look at it in their culture, this is the treatment of the insane. First of all, they tried to bind him, both hands and feet. And these chains or shackles could not contain him. He has what we might call preternatural strength. He's unable to be subdued. No one can, <laughs> can overcome the strength of this man. The other part of this treatment is isolation. He is, on the one hand, being driven out by others because they're afraid of him and they don't want him harming anybody else. But on the other hand, we're told that these demons also pushed him out into the wilderness. So he is unclean, unable to be contained, and isolated. But notice also this. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. These are the intents of demons, is to destroy God's image, mankind. This is self-mutilation, cutting yourself, and those types of things. These demons turned on the man and attempted 
self-destruction. We're even told that there are those in our society who worship demons and Satan. They say, well, it's not so bad. And yet every time demons or Satan are involved, there is the destruction of man and the devaluing of life and mutilation. This is the state of this man. It looks terrible. But here's what Jesus does. Crying out with a loud voice after the, they had fallen down before him, they cried out and said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Here's the Spirit-filled Lord, the Master of all things. He's given the title even by these demons, kind of an interesting title, Son of the Most High God. It's possible that perhaps they're using the very name of Jesus in order to try and gain some kind of influence or power over Jesus. That was an understanding of knowing somebody's given name. But notice, they're in total submission to him. They realize he has the power not only to get rid of them from this man, but to torment them. They're more afraid of being tormented than they are of being cast away from this man. And then here Jesus asks the question, what is your name? And they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now this sounds scary, doesn't it? I remember as a boy, a missionary coming to our house and talking about a demon that had been exercised on the mission field in Africa, and it scared me to death. Does it happen? Demons are still around today. The number here is revealed. They're a legion. They are many. And the name indicates a great number of demons upon this particular individual. Now, I'm not a demonologist, I can't tell you all the details of what it means to be possessed by one demon or many demons or what it means that they gave him the name Legion or all those things. I, I don't have all that information, but I do know this. These demons, begging him earnestly not to send them out of the country, it's a reminder that they recognize Jesus has authority over them. They see this herd of pigs. We're told there are 2,000 pigs in this herd. And they beg for Jesus to send them into the pigs because they know he's going to send them away from this man. And he does. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. In other words, Jesus was in control of the situation from beginning to end. The unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, the herd numbering about 2,000, ruled down or rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus wins easily. No match, no struggle. Here is a man that is so powerfully strong under the influence of the demons, nobody can contain him. He breaks chains and shackles. Here is someone whose appearance is disturbing, without clothing, blood running down his body because of him cutting himself with stones. He is the kind of person that everyone fears, their worst nightmare. And yet, by mere speaking, 
Jesus transforms his life, and these spirits run off into this herd of pigs who destroy themselves because of the self-destruction that demon possession causes. Jesus is Lord over the armies of darkness. And fear came upon all the people in the region, as it says. In fact, they were very afraid. Are there demons at work today? Let me give you a few illustrations. If you've been a first responder an ambulance driver, a policeman, a firefighter, you might have encountered the overpowering strength of a drug-induced person. Where do you think that strength comes from? Is it just physiological, or could it perhaps be demon possession? Have you seen the mania of child killing in our land that even this week, California would sue a pro-life center for giving someone the abortion reversal pill. The state of California is saying it's so important the mother have the right to kill her child that if you even offer her the ability to stop that death, they're going to sue you. That's mania. Perhaps that could be demon-influenced. Or perhaps, you know, the massive number of dangerous and disturbed homeless and dangerous and disturbed felons in our prisons. The state of their lives may not just be the consequences of their own sin, may not just be their own choices or their own circumstances or their mental health or these other things. There also may very well be demon possession here. And then, of course, the morass of encouraging self-mutilation and unclean depravity among, the, among those who are trying to sway our countries, both Canada and the United States, to embrace total immorality and the destruction and mutilation that comes with those who want to confuse our young people. Demonic. But what can drive away such evil? What can drive away a young person who has been under the influence of social media to such a degree that now they believe their whole identity is all messed up and they want to mutilate themselves so that they can somehow gain safety or some kind of security in the fact that they are now something different than they are? Who can change that and stop it? Only Jesus. Who can stop the forces of this world who are so pro-death they will do anything to pass laws and to maintain a culture of death in our society? Only Jesus Christ can stop that. Because he's Lord without question. It's interesting, there's a little word that appears throughout this particular uh, section of Scripture. It's in verse 10, it's also in verse 12, verse 17, verse 18. It's an interesting word because it's usually used, or we're reminded of this word usually in the context of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It's the word parakaleo, which often means to comfort or to encourage, but can mean to admonish. But here in this, it means to implore or to beg. 
The first ones who do this are the demons. In verse 10, it says, He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And then verse 12, They begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. This is a reminder that in our fear of lack of control, our panic over partisan fear mongers, and our financial scarecrows, and all of those things, those would cause us great panic because of the state of society. Are these things terrible sometimes? Are there awful philosophies, bad laws being passed, other things? Absolutely. But the recognition here in Scripture is Jesus is in control. Even these demons causing this individual to be self-mutilated, causing him to be so scary that he's isolated from all of society, these demons recognize that Jesus has total authority over them. And they must implore him or beg him to have mercy on them. The second ones that ask something of Jesus are the countrymen. Verse 14 says this, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. In fact, one of the other gospel writers tells us he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was teaching him, and he was learning, being discipled for at least a few moments before they came. This was the incurable person. This was the uncontrollable person. And here he was, completely normal. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The countrymen were imploring Jesus because they feared the power of Jesus. First of all, they feared his ability to cure the uncontrollable and the incurable. They'd never seen anything like it. He was a lost cause. He was someone that no one could control. He was someone that they were just waiting to die. They were hoping that at some point they would not have to deal with this man again because he was outside the realm of saving. He was outside the ability of anyone to change his life or bring him back into society. And Jesus, by a mere word, drove out those demons and the man was in his right mind. Secondly, they feared Jesus' power to destroy their financial base. 2,000 pigs. Do you realize how valuable those are? That's a lot of money. Especially in this day, there weren't that many, probably 2,000 pig farms. It's a lot. And they recognized that Jesus had the power and the authority because of the consequences of his power and authority over demons to allow 2,000 pigs to be destroyed. And the financial circumstances of this from the owners must have been disastrous. And they thought, we can't have this. Go away. And the world says this too. Think about it. When someone has been caught in the captivity of this current fad, 
to change their gender by mutilating their bodies and all those other things, and they go through with this, and the circumstances are terrible, and they come to their senses and come to Christ and regret those things, those who would oppose the idea that someone could be rescued from this terrible philosophy will do everything in their power to silence them and ask them to go away. But the third one who begged was the man himself. Now clean, now in his right mind, now saved by Jesus. As he was getting into the boat, that is Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The cured demoniac implores to join Jesus. He wants to be his disciple. He wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. And the amazing thing, Jesus said yes to the demons. You can go into those pigs. He said yes to those countrymen. He got in the boat and left. But he said no to the demon-possessed man. Even though there was a context here of obedient faith, the guy didn't try to run and get into the boat. Unlike the leper back in chapter 1, verses 43 through 45, when Jesus said, don't go and tell everybody what has happened. What did he do? He went and told everybody anyway. This particular man seems to have truly been saved, was a real disciple, and not only that, was a Gentile. It was not yet the time for Gentiles to come into the kingdom. So Jesus said, no. But he knew that Jesus was his master. And that whatever Jesus said, because he was the Lord, he wanted to follow him. I wish I was a fly on the wall to hear the guided prayers, the anguished prayers of Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. Augustine was her son. He had fallen into base immorality, and it looked like there was no hope for him to change. He had position, he had influence, he had intelligence, he had everything the world had to offer, and here he was, an unbeliever, going about sinning in the world. And Augustine credits his mother's prayers to be used as an instrument by God so that God, by his grace and joy in Monica, would answer that prayer and save Augustine. What about you? Are our prayers imploring? Do we beg God to have mercy on us? Do we beg him to allow us to join him as disciples and follow him and tell the world about Jesus? Paul, it tells us, prayed earnestly, begged God to take the thorn out of his flesh. Jesus, we're told, in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed so hard that he sweat drops of blood. Puts my prayers to shame. Yet, why can we implore and beg from Jesus these things? Because Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over the armies of darkness. He's Lord without question. 
You know, he's Lord whether or not you accept him as Lord or not. He is Lord whether or not you acknowledge the fact that he is Lord. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to confess your sin? Are you going to change your life? Are you going to intercede and implore and beg God for mercy on others? You see, that's a great design for today. When we look out around us and we see the fears of the climate change, whatever that might be, when we see the fears of society around us, when we as believers, I don't know how many times people will come to me and say, is the end coming because things look worse than they ever have in my lifetime? A question, by the way, that believers have asked for thousands of years now. And here they have all kinds of fears. If you have these fears, why aren't you going to the Lord and asking him to help with those fears? Why aren't you going to him and asking him to spare your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, your parent, your brother, your sister? Beg the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus is Lord. And if he designs, he can change them. He can save them. If he can save the demoniac who is incurable and uncontrollable, he can save anyone. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I do know some of us in this very room have relatives, friends, neighbors, co-workers who are bound in their sin, who may perhaps even be possessed by demons, who, Lord, have been captured by the philosophies of this age. Lord, there is evil amongst us. Sometimes it comes out of our own hearts and mouths. Father, have mercy. Save these people from their sins. We beg you, Lord, not just for the sake of our country or the sake of our family, but for your glory. May the world see the lordship of Jesus Christ through the salvation of sinners. Use us as your instruments that we might be like this demon-possessed man who after his possession was proclaiming the wonders of what Jesus had done for him amongst all his countrymen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.